Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the polio epidemic in the United States in the early to mid 20th century, taught by Davidson College professor Sally McMillan. Okay, I just wanted to explain in advance that this history course looks uh, at responses to disasters in American history with an emphasis on research and writing. Over the semester, we've examined various disasters from different perspectives. First of all, the psychological and physical problems at Jamestown, disaster sermons in responses to fires, hurricanes, and epidemics in colonial America, famine suffered by the Donner Party en route to California, Irish immigrants fleeing the potato famine, and the ability to create new lives in this country. Disaster tourism at the Johnstown flood of 1889, the impact of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York City, and disaster art that emerged from the 1930s Dust Bowl. So today, we are discussing David Oshinsky's Pulitzer Prize winning book, Polio, An American Story. You all received questions that I posted. Um, And I'm really interested in this topic because I also teach a seminar in the 1950s, and of course that's when so much of this book takes takes place. And I think just looking at polio really reveals um, so many different issues that affected that decade. Um, Before starting though, I just wanted to mention one thing in light of what we were talking about uh, in terms of Dust Bowl art. I was reading the New York Review of Books, and there is a review of a novel that Woody Guthrie wrote, uh, a novel called House of Earth doesn't get a very good review, uh, but obviously he gets some attention. And you'll be pleased to know that the introduction was by a historian named David, uh, Douglas Brinkley and Johnny Depp. So I think they're trying to sell copies by having a superstar uh, on, the, on the cover. Okay, I've divided the discussion today into four sort of major themes. We can't cover all of Oshinsky's books, but I thought the most interesting were uh, looking at philanthropy, medical research, scientists and their um, various personalities, which are interesting, and also the ethical issues. Um, So with that, let's start with the way we always do when looking at anything we have to read, and that is, first of all, who is David Oshinsky? Yeah. Katie. A professor, a history professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and a distinguished scholar in residence at NYU. Okay, so fairly reputable. We would say, yeah, okay, probably knows what he's talking about. Yeah, also, David? Um, I saw that he won a Car- the Cartwright Award, a Cartwright Prize from Columbia University um, Medical Center in 2010, and that was for his research into the history of Polia. So that also like, helps add credit before even like, reading. Definitely, his book. definitely adds some credibility. Were you going to add something else, Regan? Um, he also won the Pulitzer Prize, Pulitzer Prize Award in 2006 for this book. Yeah, winning a Pulitzer Prize is, is substantial, that's for sure. Um, and so overall, what did you think of his writing, his scholarship, his research? Were you impressed? Did you, yeah, Elizabeth? I mean, I was impressed by the thoroughness of his research, how um, I think he kind of went above and beyond researching the relationships between the scientists and between, you know, the politicians and the scientists and the foundation. I think there was a lot, he sort of like went pretty much as far as he could. It was like a lot like what, when we talked to Robert Caro, how it took him, you know, seven years to write his book instead of like two. It kind of felt like the same way. Yeah, right, very much in-depth, and, a, and a, really a nice variety uh, in terms of people he interviewed. Caroline? Um, I thought there was a good balance between information and kind of story in the book. I found it very readable. I thought originally when we had to read the whole book, it was going to take me a really, really long time, but I found myself getting really into it. I thought it was really, really easy to read and really interesting, so I think he did a good job of making it accessible and not so academic. I think this is one of the great examples of how history is really stories, um, you know, and this is a very, very well-told story on multiple levels. Carly? I think also he kind of told, he did a good job describing 
the historical um, point of it as well as the scientific point, but also the kind of politics of each point, like not only a political aspect, but the politics of science, which was an interesting point of view for us to read, and we talked yeah. about that last night. Something really different. We haven't done that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. So what do you think? Did he deserve the Pulitzer Prize? Shall we vote, or what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think thumbs up, right? Okay. So um, obviously a, a man of some repute and certainly did a great job on this book. Um, well, the first recorded, well-recorded um, outbreak of polio took place in Rutland, Vermont in um, 1894. Uh, 123 people there caught polio. There was another outbreak, substantial outbreak in 1907, and then a major outbreak in 1916 that began in Pigsty, or Pigtown, excuse me, Pigtown in, in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And that spread across the Northeast, and some 6,000 people died uh, from that outbreak. Um, Oshinsky has an interesting comment or thoughts to, to make about why these epidemics suddenly broke out, why it is in the late 19th and then in the early 20th century, um, suddenly we see these so many more people affected by this disease. And what does he say? How does he tie in the germ theory of disease uh, with his comments about the outbreak of those polio, epide the polio epidemics? Um, he describes it as the age of cleanliness. Okay. So, um, America became so preoccupied with hygiene, sanitation, cleaning up the cities, and with that, as the youth weren't as exposed to um, microorganisms that carried disease and bacteria, so they were more likely to be infected and not have an immune system to certain diseases. Okay, so yeah, and, and carry that forward or somebody else, what does that mean in terms of children not being exposed to the germs and bacteria? What happens? Yeah, Generally, he says when you got polio as a young child, it was a lesser dose or it wasn't as effective. You didn't have as many side effects from it. So when you get it as older, it's stronger, sort of like chicken pox. It's better to get it as a young kid. It's a much milder case. Right. And you, and you know, and particularly when you're really young, um, you mm -hmm. have your mother's antibiotic, antibiotics to sort of withstand the impact of those diseases. And so that was all something that, that was sort of traditionally happened in America. But suddenly everybody's washing hands, cleaning clothes better sanitation. Uh, I don't know if it's an argument for not washing hands these days. I don't think so. But um, still, uh, you know, something had happened in this country to p make people more susceptible to polio. So by the early 20th century, Americans were in a panic about polio. And what was so frightening about that disease? What was different about polio that hadn't been true of diseases before this? Regan? Well, I think a factor that made it so frightening is that it was primarily children who got it and it wasn't they saw no reason for why certain children got like it wasn't just children like poor communities it was children like all across the board like maybe even more so in like rich and clean areas and right. like there's no cause or no cure I mean no known cause or no Okay, so for like a disease like cholera, this would be traditionally among the poor. You know, those who are drinking bad water, those who are living in filthy conditions. Polio hit everybody, okay? There was no class issue when it came to polio. And also, initially, it hit very, very young children. Hence, you know, it was called infantile paralysis. Uh, because it hit, you know, children typically sort of between the ages of one and three. That's going to change. But nevertheless, you know, here it is affecting innocent children. Um, what else was different about this disease? Yeah, Elizabeth? Well, I think it just, like, accelerated very quickly. Um, it was as if, you know, all of a sudden one morning a child would wake up with a stiff neck and a fever, and then, you know, a couple of hours or a day later they could be losing feeling in their limbs. And I think that, that was terrifying for a totally. lot of parents because they had no... You know, it was just like that. Yeah, and no idea how the child had, had, got, had gotten the disease. Sperry, were you going to add something else? Um, I was going to say uh, along the same line, oh. but I was also going to say that they recently came out with, like, the antibiotic of uh, penicillin, but um, that had no effect on polio because it was a, it was a viral infection. Right. And so this, a viral infection was kind of, like, new to that age with, like, influenza. And yeah, this is a viral infection, not bacterial, so penicillin did absolutely no good. Anything else that was sort of unique and different about this disease? In Katie? some of the later cases, they said it could wipe out the entire family. I think there's one family that had five kids that died one day after each other. And there were cases of that, right. Terrifying to Yeah, parents. totally, totally, um, totally terrifying. So um, this was uh, 
you know, something that you can just imagine being a parent and, and you know, having a very, very young child suddenly succumb to this, um, to this horrible, horrible disease. So nobody knew what caused it. Nobody knew how to cure it. Um, and initially, what was the response? Uh, if you, you know, if a child got polio or if you feel feared polio in your community, how did people react? What did they do initially? What did they do with yeah, Josh? Uh, they were quarantined and they shut down public spaces where children would gather, like swimming pools and movie theaters. Right. I mean, indeed, rightly understood, it was contagious. It did spread from person to person. So they understood this was a contagious disease. Um, and I can tell you stories of, of friends of mine, at least, who uh, you know, remember in childhood when they couldn't go to the local public swimming pool. Uh, you know, movie theaters were closed, where literally you were, you were forced to stay out of any situation that involved a whole lot of people, particularly areas where children, um, children gathered. Um, Oshinsky also shows the very sorry state of medical research in the late 19th century. Um, this was, people almost distrusted uh, you know, medical research. Um, and of course, no one could conceive of the federal government supporting medical research. You know, we didn't have the National Institute of Health. We didn't have the Centers for Disease Control. Um, you know, this was something, medical research, if it happened, uh, was something that had to be funded by individuals or by um, foundations, but it really wasn't generating that kind of response. And for many doctors, certainly this was true in the mid to late 19th century, if you really wanted a good medical education, you went abroad. If you really wanted to engage in any kind of research, you went to Europe. But all that changed in 1902, when what happened? Who, what, what major donor? <laughs> changed all of that. Yeah, Reagan? Uh, Rockefeller? Yeah, John D. Rockefeller, right. I mean, he had millions, all right. What is he going to do with his money? Uh, and indeed, he was convinced to give this money to found a research institute, not a hospital, not a medical school, but an actual research institute. And this, of course, is the Rockefeller Institute, which is in New York City. In fact, if you go to New York City, I mean, you can see this beautiful, beautiful, these beautiful grounds and this building. Um, it's right on the East River, I think in the high 50s or low 60s. Um, so this was something new. This was very exciting. And the director, uh, the man who was appointed director of this institute was a man named Simon Flexner, who held this position for 40 years. Um, and what did you get? Did you get any sense of his personality, the man who headed this institute? Yeah, Maggie? It seemed rather headstrong. Like, uh, rather. <laughs> How about removing the rather? <laughs> yes, OK, headstrong. And it's like. It was then like polio was like kind of his domain, and if you were going to like research polio, you had to do it his way or just or do another area. So he seemed to be like rather controlling and think that there was like one way for polio research, and that was his. And his well, and he yes, and he was an incredible autocrat. Um, but I mean, he ran this institute with a, with an iron fist in a way. Um, this was this was his thing. Um, this institute, of course, took on many many diseases. Polio was merely one of the many diseases studied at the um, the Rockefeller Institute. Now, of course, the major event that really put polio in in um, uh, sort of on the map when it suddenly gained a lot more attention was, of course, a personal tragedy, and that was Franklin Delano Roosevelt coming down with polio in 1921. Um, here was a 39-year-old man. He's not, a, he's not an infant uh, from a very well-to-do family, a very robust man. Um, and suddenly, he succumbed to polio at his family summer home on Campobello Island. Now, how does Oshinsky explain how someone like Roosevelt <laughs> got polio. What, what, what had happened in his past or recently to him to explain this? Sperry? Um, well, he says that he was extremely vulnerable because as a child he didn't have um, many illnesses and then as he was growing up he became very active. He was traveling, traveling the world and he also, um, he also like, became exhausted and stressed with the amount of work that he had. Okay. And that led to like being his immune system going down and being, of course, like around like a bunch of other people who he could have contracted the disease from. Okay. Anybody know anything about Roosevelt's childhood? Um, yeah. 
Um, he was very like wealthy, so he was Extremely. separated yeah. from the mainstream American population, which meant that he wasn't um, he didn't contract like common childhood diseases, which would have raised his immune system. So yeah. once he went out in the real world, he was much more susceptible, like Siri said. Yes, I mean he had his mother Sarah was an extremely controlling individual, um, and she basically oversaw his childhood. She made sure he was totally protected from everything and everybody. Um, she was quite something. Um, but anyway, of course, that was just exactly what was not good for a child. You know, not having the normal exposure to diseases that most children did. So as you said, Sperry, this was, you know, a, a sort of unique childhood and this very, very privileged, privileged upbringing. Um, anything else about Roosevelt that would help explain? He was, he was exhausted, okay? Um, where had he been right before he went to Campobello Island? Pardon me? The Boy Scouts convention? Well, before, yeah, he was at a Boy Scout meeting uh, just, just days before, met a whole bunch of young boys, and that's probably where he contracted polio. What else? Wasn't he um, battling some, like, sex scandal allegations? Well, he, was, he, he had been in Washington, D.C., um, and he had been for three days um, in, under, you know, tremendous pressure going through these congressional investigations and questioning. So, again, getting absolutely exhausted. Were you going to add something else, Josh? Yeah, I was going to say, it's called the Lane Navy scandal, and it was uh, regarding, right. uh, yeah, homosexual sex and, scandal. And, you know, pressure, tension, et cetera. Um, and then, apparently, I don't know if he fell off the boat, sailboat, or if he actually went swimming. But he went into this really cold water. I don't know if any of you tried to swim up in northern Maine or somewhere like that. It's absolutely frigid. But um, he fell into the water, and then he stayed in his bathing suit. Um, and so, obviously, he got chilled. Um, and this, again, you know, interfered with his immune system um, and basically lowering his resistance. So suddenly, we have this energetic, robust, 39-year-old man uh, woke up and was paralyzed. Um, and from that point forward, of course, Franklin Roosevelt never walked alone. He always wore metal braces. Uh, he usually was, he was assisted by somebody if he ever managed to walk to a podium to give a speech. Typically, though, he was sitting. That's, that was usually, whenever you see a picture of him, typically he was, he was sitting down. And he was often in pain. And his mother felt the best the best path for, for Roosevelt to follow would be to come home to Hyde Park. She would take care of him, and he could lead this lovely, quiet life. But his wife, Eleanor, convinced him otherwise. I mean, she felt the very best thing was for Roosevelt, no, to reenter public life, um, to really try to get back to some kind of normal life, if at all possible. And fortunately, um, of course, that is what he, um, he did. Um, it's amazing how many people in this country never realized that Roosevelt was, was handicapped, that he, was, that he had had polio and that he could not walk. I've had um, students do oral histories of people who lived in the 1930s and 40s, and they're like, no, no, he wasn't paralyzed. He wasn't. They just, did, they really did not know. And so Roosevelt was determined, you know, not to make a big deal of this, not to become this sympathetic character. And also there was a stigma about being handicapped, you know, you're not robust, you're not, in a sense, a whole person. Uh, and so he didn't, he really didn't want people to know, and he did a great job of really um, hiding this fact. Well, he returned to a normal life. Um, he partnered with a, a young man named Basil O'Connor. They started a New York law firm. Um, and then shortly thereafter, Roosevelt heard about this kind of decrepit, uh, sort of uh, seedy spa down called Warm Springs, Georgia. Okay, so this is where the waters bubble up and there are all these minerals in the water and it's all warm and wonderful. Um, by the way, did any of you ever see the movie called Warm Springs? Now with Kenneth Branagh and Cynthia Nixon? Oh, anyway, I thought. It was a good movie. Um, he, um, so Roosevelt traveled there and he got in the waters and this was just wonderful. I mean, it was really soothing. It was exactly what he needed. So much to his mother's dismay, he spent like two-thirds of his inheritance buying this property uh, because what he realized is that this is exactly what he needed and also realized that other polio victims needed the same. And so out of this, he formed what was called the Warm Springs Foundation. Um, and its base, of course, was in Warm Springs, Georgia. 
<clears throat> he built his own cottage, um, and every summer he would spend weeks there just enjoying these wonderful warm mineral waters. Well, in 1928, life changed again for Roosevelt. Al Smith, um, the governor of New York, the Catholic who ran for president in 1928 against Herbert Hoover, asked Roosevelt to be his vice presidential candidate. And so after much soul searching, Roosevelt agreed. Well, he didn't, they didn't win that. In fact, it was pretty cataclysmic uh, outcome. Um, Herbert Hoover won, as we know. Um, but uh, Roosevelt became governor of New York, and he served two two-year terms as governor of New York. Well, in 1932, of course, the Democratic Party decided Roosevelt would be the perfect candidate to run against Herbert Hoover. Um, the heart of the Depression, Americans were really suffering. Um, Roosevelt ran an incredible upbeat campaign. His campaign song was Happy Days Are Here Again, even though nobody was too happy at that point. Uh, and of course, he won the uh, presidency and took office in 1933. Uh, now, many, a number of scholars have looked at Roosevelt and his character and feel that polio had an incredible impact on who he was as a person. What did you get out of Oshinsky in terms of how you know, what, what polio did for Roosevelt as a man, as a person. Did it have a positive impact? Did it have a negative impact? Katie? Well, I think so much that there was a stigma against polio. He realized that if he could go in and be such a fundamental change in the government that other people who were down and out with the Depression could do the same thing, the stigma didn't need to be there. I didn't really agree with the fact that he hid it from everyone, but it proved that just because you have a physical handicap doesn't mean that you can't go on and do impressive things. And there were people who knew about it, you right. know, and all the more that they would admire this man and see what he had been able to accomplish with, you know, a man who was basically, you know, handicapped by, by polio. It was quite incredible. Um, Roosevelt, before he had polio, was pretty much called a lightweight you know, he was, I wouldn't say he was a playboy, but he, but he was not regarded as a man of great substance, you know, just this wealthy man who'd had every privilege in life. But um, historians really feel that polio had a huge impact on him because here we are in the heart of the Depression. Here is a man who has gone through this incredibly, you know, horrible situation of, of having to, you know, I mean, live through, he did live through, fortunately, um, th this horrible disease. And he emerged, what would you imagine he would emerge with if you've gone through that kind of experience and here millions of Americans are suffering economically? How might that affect Roosevelt and who he was as a person? Yeah, Carolyn? I mean, I think it made him more empathetic to people suffering in the Depression because obviously coming from a life of privilege, he's not able to empathize with people's economic situations, but he's able to empathize with feeling less than and feeling inferior to people around you. And I think it also kind of gave him this inner drive to succeed and to prove to people yeah. that polio was not going to define him and that just because he was physically handicapped, it didn't mean that he was incapable of being a good president and an effective leader. Yeah, I think both of those are really important. The idea that he could overcome this and be, you know, it, it wasn't going to, in a sense, cause him to uh, not do his best in any respect. He was going to become a great president despite the disease and empathy. You know, that was a huge issue. You know, when he ran against Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover seemed like a man who, you know, had no connection with what people were suffering. Um, and here is a man who had really suffered physically um, and could identify with whatever somebody, whatever problem somebody was, was suffering. All right. So, Obviously, Roosevelt being in Albany as governor of New York, then, of course, occupying the White House, suddenly he is extremely busy. <laughs> and he has you know, no time to really pay attention to his foundation down in Warm Springs. So he appoints um, Basil O'Connor to take charge of it. Um, and they hire a public relations man. They hire someone to take charge of fundraising and create this incredible foundation. And the first fundraising events were what that d basically used Roosevelt effectively? What were those first events, David? What, the birthday balls? Birthday balls, right. And what was a birthday ball? <laughs> what they just like big parties like where fundraisers basically on his birthday and then 
driving like a bunch of like dimes, right? Like money. Not yet. Not not, not, not yet, yet. No dimes, dimes yet. Oh, yeah. We're still into but the balls. Just, okay, yeah, okay. we're still into the fancy balls. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's just driving a lot of money for the. Okay. Um, so yeah, celebrate Roosevelt, celebrate his birthday, and you have these fancy balls at fancy hotels, and they were all across the country, which is quite amazing to think about. It wasn't just like in New York and Washington, but all across the country. But there's a problem. Well, actually, there were a couple problems with those balls that became readily apparent within a, you know, few years. And what, what, why might people begin to think maybe these birthday balls aren't a very good idea? Josh? I think people took issue with using him as a figurehead since he was the president, and it seemed like he was, um, he should have remained neutral since he's in such an important political office. Okay, he's the president, and he's what? What is his political party? Democrat. He's a Democrat, okay, so this made immediately, you know, no Republican wants to go to a birthday ball for uh, Franklin Roosevelt, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you had the political issue, and then what message does this deliver, these birthday balls? What, 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 you know, if you're in the heart of the Depression, I mean, what's, uh, how might you, Ray Haskell? Well, the way I look at it, it's kind of not very inviting towards the lower class. Uh, to say the least, so, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, definitely some, some, some class very, differences there. Yeah, very, very strong issues, exactly. So this, yeah, these birthday balls are for the elite, they're for people who can afford them. You know, they're celebrating, people are getting dressed up, and yet there is the depression, and there, of course, is this Democratic, um, this Democratic president. Well, eventually, and you know, within a short period of time, they created the foundation for, um, the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, and again, it was Basil O'Connor who now, who again took charge of this this new new um, foundation. Um, and this is when celebrities began to be drawn to this cause, uh, including a man named Eddie Cantor. You probably never heard of this guy until you read Oshinsky's book, but he was a major radio personality, and he was the one who coined the phrase "March of Dimes," based upon well, they used to have. Um, um, sort of newsreels before movies were shown, and they were always called March of Times. And so he took that phrase and made March of Dimes. So out of that, what emerged was a totally new approach to fundraising. Forget the fancy balls. Now what happened? What, how did this foundation really transform charitable giving, philanthropy in this country? Reagan? Uh, it made it so that it wasn't just the wealthy who could contribute to fundraising. It made it so that like everyone could contribute like a little bit. Even if you're poor, you could send in a couple dimes. Okay. Yeah. And, it, and it, it, yeah. It involved like the whole country. Yeah. Everybody. Okay. This is the march of dimes. Literally march of dimes. And that's exactly what happened. Send in your dimes. <laughs> send in your contributions. We don't need a thousand dollar check. Just send in your, and they were just inundated. I mean, literally, piles and piles of dimes, you know, came in from people who, you know, found this really, really appealing. They could do their part. And there were radio announcements about the importance of the March of Dimes. Um, there were collections taken in movie theaters. Um, I, I guess people were now going to the movies. I can't quite figure that one out. But anyway, apparently they said the, the foundation raised about 40% of its contributions uh, in movie theater. So people attending the movies would, you know, there'd be a collection and they would, they would put their dimes or their quarters or whatever in these buckets. I don't know if any of you go, um, if you go to a Broadway show in November um, in New York City, um, they always have uh, this plea. It's not for the March of Dimes now, but it's for AIDS research. And so the actors all on stage at the end, they stand out in the lobby and they hold these little pails and they ask you to contribute. Same kind of thing that was um, going on back then still goes on today, but for a different, um, a different purpose. So what did this do, this type of fundraising, what did it do for people in America? How would you feel about this kind of fundraising? Yes, Barry? I think it kind of brought together the nation. It, was like a, it wasn't just a few people contributing to a cause. It was, instead, it was a, a whole nation kind of um, coming together and fighting against polio. And also got out the idea of polio, too. People probably didn't know, didn't have televisions, or didn't have... Yeah, um, no televisions, yeah. right. And it didn't have the um, ability to uh, see like newscasts and stuff like that. So it kind of got out the whole notion that polio was there and it was killing a lot and killing a lot of people in the United States. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, this is so, yeah, this is so new. Draw everybody together. Everybody is invested in this fundraising event. You know, this is, this is your disease. This is what you contribute to. Reagan? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. It reached a class of people that had never even been asked to, like, fundraise or participate in fundraising before, so it made them feel like they were, like, part of something, like, bigger than, like, like, part of, like, American, like, nationalism, which led to, like, pride, like, going into, like, World War II. Yeah, incredible, incredible pride in doing your part and helping. And and actually, well, this will give away, well, you already know how old I am, but um, um, (laughs) I remember in elementary school, we all got a little, um, it was like a little, piece of cardboard with little round slots in it where you put your dimes and so we were all we all had to fill in this this cardboard little, this little piece of cardboard with our dimes and so I'd use my allowance and I did all these extra chores because you wanted to be the first in your class you know to fill this in and then handed it in to the uh, foundation in some way um, so this was a huge deal and this was certainly a very different way to raise money and then of course there were the annual fashion shows um, and again you know while there is this you know, this outreach to the, the people of America, there were still some events that certainly had a class issue about them. And these fashion shows apparently were absolutely amazing. I mean, they would draw all the Hollywood starlets, Grace Kelly. Um, they got Salvador Dali to do some of the background murals for these fashion shows. Um, Harry Winston, who had all these really fancy jewels, would donate his jewelry for them. Um, so this was incredibly effective. And then finally, there's one more aspect of the fundraising that was so important, which had to do with the Mothers of America. And what was that? What was that fundraising? Okay. Was it the Leave Your Lights On campaign where everyone for one night left their porch lights on and people would, the mothers would go around and collect change from them and it allowed you to focus all of your effort on one time. It wasn't this month-long process. Everyone knew one night we're all going to go out and collect money. Right. And again, this was all across America. Mm-hmm. This was mothers volunteering. This is like a great volunteer army of mothers. Uh, you would volunteer. All you had to do was, you know, this didn't take much time. It was just a one-night deal, particular hour, lots of publicity in advance, posters, radio announcements, etc. cetera. Uh, and at this one time, you would um, canvas your assigned neighborhood or your assigned apartment building, and you would collect money. Um, and people would turn on a light if they wanted to give. If you lived in an apartment building, you would put out a pair of shoes, which meant you know, please knock, please ring the doorbell, come in, we are happy to give, um, give money. So again, vesting more people into this single cause. So nothing like this has happened before. This is a totally new approach to charitable, um, charitable giving. Okay, I just wanted to mention briefly, since this happened very close to Davidson, that outbreak in Hickory, North Carolina, which is only an hour up the road, um, in 1944. And I think one of the things that deserves mentioning about that outbreak was that the um, foundation reacted so quickly. You know, there was an outbreak of polio. The um, foundation moved in with nurses, with doctors. They took over a summer camp. They built a temporary hospital, um, which I think showed the incredible resources, the effectiveness that this foundation had, um, certainly in the 1940s and early, um, early 50s. And there were very few people who died. I mean, this response really, really was effective. Okay, well, major change in 1945. Roosevelt died in April of 1945. So, um, that caused a huge change. Movie uh, theaters stopped collecting for um, polio. Now they decided that the money they collected would go to um, the United Way, which is a sort of community, um, all-encompassing umbrella philanthropic organization. Um, and, um, And yet people, polio cases were on the rise. They were not, they were not decreasing because as yet there was no effective polio. Um, vaccine to offset this. So, on to the scientists and to the medical research. Um, Wondering if you found some of the behavior of these scientists as shocking as I did. (laughs) Are we dealing with young children or are we dealing with grown men? They were, (laughs) yeah, I know. Uh, Oshinsky does quite a job uh, really getting into the heart of this. Um, Okay, so there is this effort by many researchers to find an effective um, virus, excuse me, an effective uh, vaccine virus to offset uh, this horrible disease. And yet three things had to be discovered about 
polio before any researcher could really engage in an effective, you know, effective um, research. And what were those three th three things, Carly? Um, there were how many strains or types of the virus there were, um, how it entered the body and got to the central nervous system, and how to develop a safe and steady supply of the virus type for each vaccine to create okay. a vaccine. Okay. So um, the 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 first thing. Um, being how many strains there were. And so they had to start typing all the, the polio strains they found. And what did they discover? Fortunately, only yeah, three only three strains, okay, rather than hundreds. You know, today we have trouble with influenza because the strains seem to change every year. But they really were able to determine there were only um, three, three polio strains. Um, all right, the point of origin. What had people long believed about how polio entered the body? Do you remember what, Elizabeth? Well, I know some people thought that it entered through the nose. And yeah, Simon Flexner was yeah. the one, right, who knew, absolutely knew that was correct. And because he was just this, you know, larger-than-life personality and such an autocrat, you know, it's kind of like nobody dared challenge him. But researchers began to really study this and discovered what? Yeah, it comes through the mouth. The, the, the point of entry is through the mouth, through the digestive tract, briefly in the blood, um, and then, of course, can attack um, the, the muscles. So that was a huge breakthrough. And then the third one being um, how to replicate the virus in a test tube. Um, and the man who discovered this was a man named John Enders, who ultimately went on to win the Nobel, well, he and, excuse me, two assistants, ultimately went on to win the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1954. All right. So we have the foundation beginning to feel a real sense of urgency. They're raising all this money. People are really vested in this disease. It's been declared the number one menace in America, even though the death rate was not nearly as high for polio as it was for other things. But you know, when you start getting people so involved in this disease, you know, pretty soon and giving their money, you're going to expect results. Um, so the two major uh, scientists um, involved in this research, and of course they're not the only ones, but they're really the two uh, on whom Oshinsky concentrates his book. Um, the first one being um, Jonas Salk. And who was Jonas Salk? What do you remember reading about him? Anything? Anything? Um, Josh? <laughs> oh, he was an immigrant, um, and he came from humble backgrounds. And he, like, slowly was... Well, his parents were immigrants. His parents, I think, were Russian immigrants, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but it's from an second generation. Family, at least, yeah. And he, like, had very meager beginnings, but then eventually, through a series of kind of apprenticeships, managed to become a star in the field of medical research. Okay, and what was this, what was this education? Being a poor immigrant, Jewish... Went to Wasn't it the city, the high city school? college, yeah, city yeah. college of New York. Yeah, he went to a special high school, special then high city school college of New York, college. which is practically free, um, and then to NYU, which actually admitted Jews, which was, uh, you know, in the in this period was often not true of other medical schools. Um, so he graduated. He he married. Um, he worked at Mount Sinai Hospital. Um, he then went to the University of Michigan. And while at the University of Michigan, he was working on trying to find a vaccine to um, deal with, with polio. Um, the school received a lot of grants, but uh, Salk began, he, he had a falling out with his mentor because Salk actually became a, while he was doing this research at this school, he became a um, consultant to a drug company. And of course, there's a direct conflict of interest in doing that. Um, and his mentor was really astonished that he did this. Um, and also, even at this young age, Salk wanted recognition. <laughs> you know, he really wanted to be sure everybody knew that how important he was and how important the research he was uh, doing. Um, so in 1947, he left the University of Michigan and he went to the University of Pittsburgh. Now, nobody had really thought of much of the University of Pittsburgh and its involvement in research or its medical school, but the school was trying to change, it, and it really saw Salk as somebody who could sort of put this medical school on the map. So um, off he went to this, this sort of uh, place that certainly didn't have the prestige, say, as the Rockefeller Institute. Um, well, that's one side of the race. The other side, of course, is 
Albert Sabin. Um, and who was Albert Sabin? Similar story, different story. He's also um, a Russian immigrant and he was Jewish, so they kind of had a similar background. And he also, he was more established uh, as a scientist in his later years. Okay. Yeah, he was actually born in Poland, but Eastern oh, Europe. Right. Yeah, right, right. Um, and he was indeed an immigrant and came to this country when he was about 15 years old, uh, you know, got a decent education, began to really be interested in polio when he was fairly young, and was at the Rockefeller Institute. So, you know, he was indeed one of the privileged uh, scientists to be there. Um, and then, after being there at only six years, again, he sort of did the unthinkable just the way Salk had done. He left and he went where? University of Cincinnati, you know, it's like, what? Um, but again, he saw opportunities there and, you know, where he could really do the kind of work he, he wanted. So in looking at these two scientists, what did you, what, what sense did you get, what role do you think the foundation played in funding these men and in creating a situation that sort of exacerbated the tension between the two men? What did you what did you what do you what did you think of the foundation and the role it played? Yes, Barry? Well, I felt like the, the foundation was giving money to both of them to research. So um, and I, throughout the book I kind of felt like Salk, he he was kind of always determined to get some get some fame from finding this from finding this vaccine. So he was determined to he was going while Sabin, on the other hand, kind of, he was more trying to work with other researchers more than uh, Salk was. Okay, um, so you would call Sabin more of a um, pure researcher? Yeah. Um, but yeah, both men got money, mm. all right? But who got more money? <coughs> well, yeah, Salk definitely got more money, and I think it was because of his personal relationship with Basil O'Connor. They became close friends, I think. And so the foundation was able to really influence the direction the research took by emphasizing the, um, uh, the killed virus versus the live virus. Yeah, I mean, what is so, so interesting in a way in the role of this, the, the, this foundation was that early on um, you had Basil O'Connor. Well, first of all, Salk was chosen by the foundation to attend this, uh, this meeting in, in uh, Denmark you know, where all of those who were studying polio gathered. Now, Sabin was there too, but Salk was chosen, in a sense, by the foundation, you know, hand-chosen to, uh, to attend this meeting. And then on the return trip, as they were traveling home via um, a, a ship, he met O'Connor, and they became fast friends. They really developed a very, very positive relationship. So they hit it off, and so, um, you know, many scientists... <laughs> would have said at this point Salk was becoming the celebrity scientist. Um, that he seemed to be sort of the hand-picked, um, you know, not heir apparent, but certainly the man who the, the foundation felt would be the best to develop the, um, the vaccine. Um, he began to get publicity. Time Magazine did uh, stories on him. So he becomes not just a scientist, but in a sense, you know, someone the, the public certainly seemed to know about him. Now, Salk uh, called him the kitchen chemist, I think. Talk about a put down. <laughs> um, so how did you feel about these two men? Um, did, you, did you get a sense of anyone you like, either one you like better than the other, or did you sense Oshinsky showed any kind of favoritism in looking at these two you know, incredible scientists? Or is it a toss-up, get rid of both of them? <laughs> um, I kind of felt like at first Salk was um, portrayed as the underdog because he wasn't as established in the research community and he hadn't received as much recognition, but then when he gained celebrity with the American public, he, um, it kind of switched. So Emotionsky kind of portrays Salk as more of like the people's scientist and then Sabin as like the scientist. The scientist. scientist, scientist. Yeah. Right. Which man would you rather have dinner with? <laughs> That's a hard one, isn't it? What, what, what were the most negative characteristics of each man? What did you sense of Salk? Josh? Um, I feel like the worst part was that neither of them was willing to recognize the success of the other. 
So for instance, like Salk was oh really successful yeah. earlier when he like first sold the vaccine and Saban was like just constantly attacking him, saying that his vaccine would never work and that it wasn't gonna be what was best for the country. And so that was like pretty deplorable. But then as soon as Saban was successful and had like the more like the more widely spread like the vaccine that's used across the world, like Salk was still attacking him, saying his was better. And so neither of them was willing to like and, and they made this public. You know, sure. this was not a private dispute. All of this seemed to be quite, quite public, not just hidden in letters or something like that. What, what else? Do you remember anything about, yeah, Kate? Salk's drive to be known. He would, like, take people's names off of papers. Or there's the one paper where he, like, said he lost it and then got it back and put his name at the beginning. It was just didn't Wasn't quite fit right. Yeah. Yeah, writing this, I mean, his, his assistants wrote that paper. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, he supposedly got, supposedly lost it. Oh my gosh, I found it. And then his name was at the top. I mean, that's just like totally, totally unacceptable. Elizabeth? And then Saban sort of did a similar thing with, um, I think it was like with um, Cox. I think they said, they were like, oh yeah, let's like, you know, share some some samples. Um, and like when they were, cause they were both working on the, the live vaccine. And so I think it was Cox sent over some samples of like whatever he had and never received anything back from Saban. And so I think they both kind of had that quality where they were like, you know, just doing everything for themselves because they, they both of them thought that they could do it the best. Yeah, they were they were both pretty impossible, I think. And it's interesting, you know, sort of at the conclusion of the book, Oshinsky, you know, said, well, like, both of these men should have won a Nobel Prize for medicine, you know, considering what each one of them developed. Um, but no, never happened. Um, and they, I think Oshinsky hints that indeed part of the reason was that they were so awful to one another. You know, they really, really. Um, Sabin always had the support of the scientific community. Uh, Salk had the support of the public. You know, he got all this public adulation. Salk got the adulation of the scientific community, and the scientific community made it made sure that Salk never became a member of the National Foundation of Science. You know, they, they kept him out of that um, organization. All right, well, let's move on to what I think is a really interesting issue, and that is the whole ethical um, issues surrounding the testing of the polio um, vaccine. Um, what do you think about uh, the testing of the vaccine on, on orphans, on uh, mentally hand, uh, challenged children, um, on prisoners. What, what, how does that strike you? What, is, that, is that ethical? Is that right to do? Do you think this was acceptable? I mean, I think it's really inhumane because if you're talking about children especially, they're not, they don't have the mental capacity to speak for themselves and to say, no, I don't want this to be tested on me. And if you're using prisoners, you know, they're obviously considered to be like second-class citizens because they're in a prison so if something should happen to them they're not going to get an adequate level of care so they were basically considering these people to be disposable and saying well if something happens to them then we'll just find more so and as you said many of these children didn't have parents around nobody nobody to really say yes or no Uh, they're in institutions they're already (coughs) suffering huge problems and yet they were chosen to be the first recipients of the, um, the Salk vaccine. Because uh, Jonas Salk was, was moving in a positive direction. His, his, um, you know, his, his uh, killed virus vaccine seemed to be succeeding, he, but he had to try it on human beings. I mean, that was the big issue. You know, it's enough to try it on, on monkeys or something, but you've got to try it on humans. And so, you know, here, this would never happen today. You know, I mean, the, the, the care we take today, I mean, everybody fearing a lawsuit or whatever, this would never happen uh, today in terms of just using what, in a sense, was a, a population of people who basically had no say about what was, what was happening to them. Um, so did those tests, they proved positive, and then in 1954, Salk knew that he had to try his vaccine on elementary school children. Um, and here, indeed, parents are involved in this decision. He had something like, what, 1.3 million children in elementary school who got his vaccine. Now, um, before we get into some of the problems that happened, why would parents, uh, why would parents okay this when this, this vaccine had only been tested on 
a very, very select small group of people. Why'd well, they said that what they said that the killed virus couldn't cause polio, and so I think for a lot of people they were like, oh well, you know, if it's you know not a live virus and they just inject it into my kid and it, you know, if it doesn't work, it's not going to hurt them. And I think that's kind of a point that they played up. They're like, oh, it can't really hurt, but it can only help. So I think that sort of in, was incentive for a lot of people to participate. And what did that? Yeah, Carl. I also remember that kind of emphasized that parents felt like a personal guilt if their children were to contract polio. So there was kind of a desperation, like, what can we do to like possibly avoid our children getting sick? Yeah. It's like a personal thing for them. I mean, everybody now knew what polio did. They, they'd seen the pictures of children in iron lungs. They had seen children, you know, with braces on their legs. Um, you know, so there was real, you know, this continued fear was, was enormous in this country. So here is a possible prevention of your child ever getting polio. And the foundation did what? I mean, the, the Foundation for Inter Infantile Paralysis, what, what was its stance on this, on testing this virus? <coughs> did it caution people or? I mean, O'Connor said it's a privilege. <laughs> your children are among the privileged to be able to have this uh, virus. Now there were a few cautionary remarks. There was a man named Walter Winchell, who again was this huge radio personality. And he had been fed, I mean this shows you again the nasty stuff going on among scientists, but he had actually been fed some information uh, by another scientist who said, this, is, this vaccine has not been properly tested, they should not be using it, etc. And so Walter Winchell went on the radio and said, parents, watch out, you know, this is probably not a good thing. Um, and to that, Salk said, he's just looking for publicity. You know, <laughs> you know he didn't know what he's talking about. Um, and it was interesting, too, this wasn't in response so much to the testing on children, but um, Dr. Spock, who was like the child care expert of this time, um, was also a, telling parents to calm down, that perhaps the foundation was exaggerating the threat of this disease and, and you know, sort of overselling the, the problem. But in any case, they moved ahead and they tested the Salk vaccine on these children. And they had some placebos. They, um, I mean, they, took, they did this very, very carefully, supposedly. Um, and it took a year for them to finally get the results after they gave these children the vaccine. And the results were, of course, positive. Great, a great moment in American medical history. The vaccine, Salk vaccine worked. And so the foundation knew that it had to make a huge deal of this. I mean, finally, they had, they had the answer. And so they held this event at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor um, on October 12th, 1955. People gathered, the press was there. Edward R. Murrow, this TV personality was there. You know, this was a huge, huge event with this incredible news. Um, and a man named Thomas Francis stood up. He was representing the foundation and he gave this rambling 98-minute uh, talk on the glories of this, uh, of this discovery. Um, and Salk spoke. Um, the Today Show revealed the news that next morning, um, but <laughs> some things went wrong <laughs> shortly thereafter, within a day or two and also within a few days. And what were the negatives after that great, this was, this was really Salk's moment of glory. I mean, he was thrilled. The foundation was thrilled. And then, poof, things happened. What went wrong? What went wrong in this? Yes, yeah, Salk, Well, there were a couple outbreaks of polio um, brought about from the Cutter uh, Laboratories. Okay, and we'll get into that in a minute. Right. Yeah, okay. So we have, we have some negative results. Like, oh my gosh. This, this, this vaccine caused polio. This is supposed to be a dead virus, okay? This is supposed to not, not cause polio. You have the outbreak of a few cases. What else happened that was upsetting to Salk? Josh? Well, Salk never thanked his research team. Is that the, what you looking for? Right, Salk got up there, gave this talk, and it was as if he alone had been the only one who had done anything on this research, and yet he had had several assistants who played a huge role in this discovery. And they were sitting there. You don't do this in the science world. I mean, you've seen articles, and they've always got like 10 authors of all the people who had engaged in this research. Um, and so there was Salk taking total credit for this discovery, and his assistants were just like, 
I mean, they were just, they just couldn't even believe it. Um, and so that was, that was an incredibly disappointing, um, disappointing moment. Um, and then what else, what did, do you remember what Salk said that, yes, Elizabeth? Yeah, he totally undercut um, sort of the effectiveness of like his, or the results where um, they had said that I think the vaccine was like 70 or 80% effective and he was like, saying how he had still been working on his next vaccine it was going to be a hundred percent effective and so i think he managed to sort of anger the science community saying like undermining his own results and then also sort of angering the american people who kind of felt betrayed by him not having um you know, why hadn't he just waited to, you know, send out another vaccine instead of, like, trying this less effective one and waiting a year to do the more effective? Yes, exactly. I mean, it's it's like, wait, this vaccine was supposed to be absolutely foolproof. It was supposed to work. Um, and then you have Salk almost immediately saying, well, actually, the vaccine I've just developed is, is far better than the one we used. Um, and he was like, well, wait a minute, my child just had this vaccine. So, you know, that certainly was a, a disconcerting moment for uh, those. All right. The first, one of the first uh, big problems that happened, though, afterwards. Okay, so it's been a success. You've had, you know, hundreds of thousands of children vaccinated in this country. And now you have millions more waiting to get the vaccine. What happened? What was the problem that uh, affected the distribution of the vaccine? Was there a distribution plan? <laughs> um, the government and the foundation really hadn't explored um, how they're going to produce so much um, of the vaccine to supply the enough of right. the American population that needed it. So, I mean, there was a public outcry because they were worried they weren't going to be, um, be able to have their children vaccinated. And it was kind of turned on the government and the foundation like you should have handled this already. Yeah. In other words, that nobody had a plan. Nobody had thought about, okay, you've got the vaccine, then how are you going to make sure everybody gets it, assuming it's successful? So people were really upset. Again, they they've vested, you know, their emotions and their money in this foundation and what is trying to achieve. And suddenly they're confronted with the fact that there actually is not any kind of distribution plan. And the head of HEW, a woman named Oveta Culp, Culp Hobby, um, you know, just fumbled around. She didn't know what to do. And what was the problem with the government distributing the vaccine? Doesn't that seem like a natural way to go for the government to take charge and step in? What would be the problem with that? Why not the government? Josh? Is that somewhat reminiscent of socialism, which was such a hot topic in the 1950s? Socialized medicine, oh, no, my gosh, we're going to be like Canada. This is not the role of the federal government. And in fact, the drug companies were dead set against this. It was like, you know, this is something for private companies to take charge of. The government should not step in. So this created enormous problems, but it also made the American public really, um, really angry. And then, of course, physicians stepped into the whole thing, and they said, well, actually, you shouldn't be giving these vaccines in elementary school. These should be done in a doctor's office so the doctors could make money. So it created this horribly complicated situation um, in which, you know, there obviously had been no plan for distribution. Um, and ultimately, um, Hobby resigned. I mean, it was just such a bad situation. And then, of course, there was the Cutter Lab disaster, which was what? What was the Cutter Lab disaster? Um, you re- Go ahead. Go ahead. They <laughs> manufacture the vaccine improperly. And it caused a lot of people to get sick or a lot of children to get sick. Okay, so we had, we had several companies developing the vaccine, all right? And this one lab in Berkeley, California, Cutter Lab, um, had developed the vaccine. But what went wrong? They discovered that 400,000, there were 400,000 vaccines done by Cutter Lab. Um, somehow a live virus got into the bottles that they were using. Supposedly right. Cutter Laboratory was the only one who used these bottles to... Um, to give out the vaccine, so somehow or some way, a live uh, virus got in there and affected okay. uh, a bunch of people. So this was definitely um, uh, well. Part of the problem was with testing and how much testing had been done on the um, these vaccines. Next to none. One day, 
one day at this point. Again, the rush to get this out, the rush to have this done. They tested these vaccines only one day. They sort of ignored the ones that didn't quite pass muster. Oh, that's okay, we'll use them anyway. But before this, they had used, they had taken four weeks to test this, this vaccine. But again, this was a rush and this had to be done um, right away. Now, O'Connor was furious. Basil O'Connor was furious. And what he did, interestingly, he blamed those who were working for the live virus vaccine. You know, he thought there was some kind of plot that somebody had come into this lab or something and tried to undermine the, uh, the situation. It was really, really quite um, <clears throat> incredible. All right. Well, <coughs> um, interests now turn. Now that Salk, uh, Salk's vaccine was under question, Americans began to turn toward Sabin and his live virus vaccine. Um, and so again, you know, using a different approach to solving this problem of polio. But again, Sabin needed to test his vaccine. And where did he do it? Where was Sabin able to test his vaccine? Yeah, in the Soviet Union, okay? Polio was becoming a huge problem in the Soviet Union. Um, cases were rising, and the Soviets invited uh, both Salk and Sabin to come to their country. Um, well, Salk didn't accept the invitation, Sabin did. Um, and so the Soviet government decided that they would use Sabin's live virus vaccine to test on, or not to test, but to use on 10 million Soviet children, and that's exactly what they did. Using the, the power of the, of the Soviet government, they tested it on 10 million children, and it was basically a success. So this was, a, again, a huge, uh, huge breakthrough. So we've only got a few more minutes, so let me just quickly uh, sort of summarize and um, end this discussion. Um, by 1956, the number of polio cases were really declining in this country. Um, <coughs> it was, uh, the, the vaccines were working. There was still some, some real debate about Salk versus Sabin. Nobody had quite made a decision. That would happen in a couple of years. Um, but Salk decided now that he needed a new project, okay? He had done his research on polio, and what was his new project? Anybody to get that far in the book? <laughs> But yeah, but what did he want? What did he need to do to study? Yeah, he did start studying AIDS. He wanted to open up a new lab and recreate his entire Yeah, he wanted, he wanted his own research institute. He went to the University of Pittsburgh where he had been, and he tried to convince them that this would be a good thing. They demanded they would have some kind of control over this. Salk wanted total control. And so he left the University of Pittsburgh and he went to La Jolla, California. I don't know if you've ever been to La Jolla, but is this absolutely jewel of a city, uh, you know, small city, right on the Pacific Ocean. He got the city to contribute land. I mean, on this bluff overlooking the ocean, you couldn't ask for a nicer location. Um, he got um, the foundation to provide some seed money, like $15 million. He hired the most preeminent architect in this country, Lois Kahn, to do the design for this, this um, institute. And so he now has his, in a sense, he has exactly, exactly what he wanted. Um, obviously, expenses were high. Um, the foundation began to uh, withdraw its support from Salk. It moved on to other things, and O'Connor died. Um, but um, Salk himself uh, had divorced his first wife. He then married the former mistress, Picasso's former mistress. He began to dress in these elegant clothes, etc., and he had his good life in California. He did engage in AIDS research, but um, by then he was a very, very uh, different, different person. Um, so some of this rivalry continued, and of course there are all kinds of other issues we haven't even had time to, um, to discuss, but I just wanted to mention briefly um, that um, the um, polio remains a problem in this world, but one that has been substantially reduced. Um, first of all, in this country there are some 400,000 survivors of polio. Um, I actually know two people at Davidson who work at Davidson who have had polio. Um, and Oshinsky says that some people are starting to um, really suffer from what's called polio syndrome, 
which is a result of their muscles gradually weakening. And so polio, you know, even though they've survived polio, they are now having some, some, there's some kind of impact that has remained. But he also says that the polio survivors tend to be type A overachievers, um, perhaps like a Roosevelt. So that, of course, is a good thing. And interestingly, polio is still in the news, and it was actually, there was an, a news, um, news coverage of this last week on NPR um, because a reporter was talking about how polio is on the verge of being wiped off this earth, um, sort of the way smallpox was years ago, that polio will probably no longer be with us in a few years. Um, last year, there were only 223 cases worldwide in three countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Nigeria. Um, the World Health Organization and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are working on this in a major way, providing huge amounts of money to eradicate this forever. Their goal is 2018, there will be no polio in, this, uh, in the world. Um, the only bad thing is that you may remember a few weeks ago, there were polio, there were nine polio workers, women who were working um, in Pakistan who were gunned down and killed. Uh, just a uh, horrible, horrible, uh, horrible situation. But the other thing I wanted to mention is that good things can happen from a history book, um, beside all you learn, but I did read that um, Bill Gates read this book when it first came out, and he loved it, and he was so inspired that he decided that his foundation would indeed uh, take on polio uh, as a major, a major focus for his vast amounts of money. And so that sort of uh, prompted him to try to move toward eradicating polio worldwide. So we're almost there today. Um, and I always get people ask me about the March of Dimes today. Um, I still get mail from the March of Dimes. And um, what it works on now, obviously not polio, but is birth defects, particularly in premature babies. So they're still doing good things and still raising money, but for something very different from polio. So that's it um, for our disease of the day. And um, Thursday, you all should have read the essays for peer editing and marked them up significantly. And we will have group group interaction with peer editing on Thursday. Okay? Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.